Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world, until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, 
whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let's pray now. Father God, we come before you this morning um, after a week where our human leaders have been shown to be so frail and temporary. Um, We come before you, a magnificent cornerstone, uh, an eternal king, one in whom we can fully put our trust. Be with Mike now as he opens this passage to us. Show us your son in all his magnificence in this passage. May our hearts be ready to listen. May they be ready to be changed. Um, May we be willing to um, submit our lives to you. Um, So be with us now uh, through your great and wonderful spirit in your son's great and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Please keep your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 13. This is the longest block of Jesus' teaching recorded in Mark's gospel, uh, which makes it quite significant in itself. And if you've got your church Bible there or your, or your own Bible, you probably see a heading that's been added by the translators. The, the headings in bold aren't original. They were added to help us kind of find our way around. And the heading says, The Destruction of the Temple and signs of the end times. Ooh, the end times. Reference to the end times is enough to make some people quiver with excitement. Some years ago, a colleague and I decided to run a public Bible study in central Manchester. We ran it on a weekday lunchtime in a shop basement, and we advertised for anyone to come, and for some reason, we decided to teach the book of Revelation. I can't remember why. Uh, Looking back, I I would have chosen another book, probably Mark. (laughs) Because Revelation is very weird and wonderful, and it drew some extraordinary characters off the streets of Manchester. One of them, by the way, was a young man who could do the Rubik's Cube in about 10 seconds, blindfolded. And his surname was Gooley. (laughs) Not making it up. But others were obsessed with revelation. Why? Because they saw it as a code to crack, to understand the end times, when the end of the world might be. One man was totally obsessed with it. He missed the study and wrote to me, I didn't come today because I was asleep. I was up all night working on my studies on revelation. With the second coming now pinned down between 2020 and 2060. All the other expositors are right about Revelation. They just got the vials wrong. So he's trying to find the end of the the end of time, the end of the world, when when God is going to call time. Now it's very intriguing to speculate on these things, but the Bible doesn't give us a timeline, and that's deliberate. In fact, the question of when the world will end is answered by Jesus in the passage in front of us. You might have missed it. It's quite important to know this, isn't it? Mark 13, verse 32. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, that's Jesus, but only the Father. So when's the world going to end? No one knows except God the Father. Now, the end of the world is a matter of great interest to non-believing people and secular people as well. In our generation, we have woken up to the realities of environmental damage, haven't we? 
The scientific consensus is that we are heading for ecological disaster. We've all been receiving an education about pollution, single-use plastics, and other very worthy matters. Non-Christian people fear for the future of this planet. What will happen? So whether you're a committed Christian here today or a person exploring faith, the teachings of Jesus about the end of the world are actually very relevant to us, even if we thought it seemed a bit wacky at the start. And questions around the end times uh, are, are technically known as eschatology. Eschatology refers to the end. And these things are important. And the, the basic teaching of the New Testament is very clear, actually. It's that Jesus Christ will return visibly and personally at the end to, to judge the world and to renew the whole world. Jesus is coming back personally and visibly and he will judge the world and renew the world. And, and for those who accept the Bible's trustworthy, we all agree on that, actually. That's, that's baseline. But there is almost no consensus on the details about Jesus' return and the end times. Not at all. Sincere, godly, and scholarly Christians disagree on almost all of the details because much of the material in the Bible about it is written in a style called apocalyptic, and it's very difficult to interpret. Now, what this means is that whatever you believe on this matter, and we will have different opinions in the room, we must hold our convictions humbly, with humility and a certain amount of tentativeness. You don't really believe that you're wiser than the rest of the Christian church, do you? I know I'm not, so this calls for humility. But we should study to understand what the Bible says about the end times because it will have a massive impact on how we understand our life, spend our time, spend our money, whether you're basically going to be optimistic or pessimistic about life in this world and so on. Now, everything I've just said is just introduction to this passage, Mark 13, which does speak about the end times but in a way that's quite difficult to interpret. It's prophecy given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But it is not apocalyptic literature like Revelation. Now, you've probably heard about the Duke of Edinburgh Award. I wonder if any of these young people have actually done the Duke of Edinburgh or, or will be doing it. Some, some, some have done it. To get the Duke of Edinburgh Award, one of the things you have to do is to plan and execute a trip out into the country somewhere and you've got to do it with all old-fashioned things like a, a compass and a map. And you've got to take your backpack and your tent and your food supplies. And you're not allowed to go to the shops. And you're certainly not allowed to use your mobile phone. You're not allowed to use any kind of transport. So what you've got when you, the, the, the students are going off, and my, one of my kids did this, not sure if he was going to come back alive, um, is you, the, the, the map is absolutely essential. You need a map or you're just going to get completely lost out there in the hills. So I want to show you a little map about Mark 13 to just put this in some context before we uh, dive in. So it's going to come up on the screen here. And I'm going to point with a very old-fashioned pointer. So here you see uh, on... This is the photocopy of the church Bible. And down here I've put this section called A1. And this is what Jesus says in response to his disciples asking him about the Jerusalem temple. There's A1. Now, here, up on the right-hand side, you notice there's a little word circled, and it changes to B1. 
And that word is but in those days. And at this point, Jesus starts talking about the distant future. You see? But in those days. And that bit there, B1, is all about the future, the end times. Now here in A2, he comes back to talking about the temple. A2 is about the temple. And then in B2, there's that little word again, but about that day and hour, no one knows. And that's about the distant future. And I hope that little map will help you not to get too lost in the woods here because Mark 13, Jesus Christ is talking about both the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was going to happen uh, a few decades later, and he's talking about the long, far distant end of the universe. One of these sets of events is local and would happen in the lifetime of some of those who heard it. The other sets of events are cosmic and are to do with the entire universe and the whole world. And they are happening at a time that is unknown. There's two different horizons here in our passage. And I hope that, that um, just talking about those two separate events will help us. Now notice, back to your, your Bible, chapter thir- thir- 13, excuse me, verse 1. As Jesus is leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. We're back in the temple and the disciples are admiring it. And who could blame them? Herod's temple was the largest and most imposing building for hundreds of miles. Some said it was the most beautiful building in the world at that time. The Roman historian Tacitus described it as immensely opulent. No expense was spared. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that each stone in the temple was 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. The stones were immense. Josephus said that looking at the building was like staring at a beautiful mountain. The front was gold-plated, so it shone like the sun. The temple rebuilding program had taken 80 years of manual labor. And it was more than just a temple. It was a symbol of the whole nation. So imagine that the significance of this building, this temple, was like Buckingham Palace, the Houses of Parliament, and St. Paul's Cathedral all rolled into one. But Jesus says, verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And they are appalled. Jesus is predicting some catastrophe, some sort of violent event. And we know when this prophecy came true. It was in the year 70. 70 AD, the Roman army under Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. They broke the people's will. They, they broke in, they destroyed the city, and they raised the temple to the ground. We know when that happened. But for Jesus' disciples, and this is in the early 30s AD, it's absolutely shocking. They, they just can't come to terms with it. So as you can see in verse 3, four of the close disciples come to him privately, probably really rattled. And they want to know, because this is very urgent, when is this going to happen and what will be the sign that it's going to happen? And here's the key to the whole chapter. They assumed that the destruction of the temple would mean the end of the world. Because in Jewish thinking, that those two things would be linked. 
The temple was so important, it's where God dwelt, that if that was destroyed, that means, means the end of the world. They can't separate those two realities, those two horizons. And so Jesus answers the question, but he answers it with two horizons in view. He deals with the two separate events. First of all, he deals with the temple, verse 5 to 23, and he gives a parable about that, about the fig tree. But he also, wrapped up in that, he, he gives a, an answer about the end of the world and gives a parable about that, the parable of the owner of the house who goes away on the trip and what the servants should do. So hopefully now you've got this, this uh, the map here. Now, what is the real-world cash value of this teaching for us here in Chesington? There are two very important practical lessons to, we can draw from it. And this is, I've got two points today. Firstly, how to live when your world is falling apart, which is what the temple meant for them. How to live when your world is falling apart. Two, how to live when Jesus could come back today. Because that's the thing he's saying about the end times. How to live when your world is falling apart. How to live when Jesus could come back today. So firstly, how to live when your world is falling apart. Most Jewish people saw the temple as the center of the universe. It was what gave them coherence. It gave them a cultural identity. It gave them a deep sense of security because the temple was where God was said to live and dwell in a special way. Here is Psalm 132. The Lord has chosen Zion. That's a hill where the temple is. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food, and I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. See how it's all based around the temple? So it was their security. Gave them their identity as, as Jews in a, in a difficult world. Even if all else failed, they still got the temple, the visible sign that God was with them. But now Jesus Christ predicts it's all going to be destroyed. Not two bricks will be left standing on each other. But he doesn't tell them the date. He gives them the information they need, not the information they want. Rather than just tell them the sign, he says some things first that are not signs. Verse 5 and 6. Watch out, he says, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claim, I'm he, and will deceive many. See, there are going to be people coming who are deceivers, religious teachers, people who gain a following. And these guys will trick people with daring declarations and dramatic gestures and they make big claims about their own spiritual leadership. And you know this thing happens right down to the present day. Right down to the present day, there have been some extraordinary stories of cult leaders, particularly in the United States, but other parts of the world as well, Korea, uh, where they, the leader claims a following by, by talking about the end of the, the world. And Jesus says, just watch out. Be discerning about this. Don't be pu pulled in and fooled by these tricksters, assess things spiritually. Don't be fooled. And then in verses 7 and 8, he gives some warnings about wars and earthquakes and natural disasters that feed fear. Verse 7, he says, um, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, 
kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. What about when there's a natural disaster, you know, a tsunami or a huge earthquake? Cataclysmic events that can shake us to the core. Jesus says, don't, don't let them alarm you. When the world is collapsing around, followers of Jesus may get impatient. Lord, when will you return? They may yearn for deliverance from their distress. But Jesus says, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Prepare yourself for the long haul. And then he warns them about persecution. Because this has been part of the church of Jesus Christ's story right from the start. And the fact that we don't get persecuted in very obvious ways is, is pretty exceptional in world history and even in the world today. Verses 9 through 13, Jesus warns them to be on their guard because they're going to be handed over to the local council. Imagine being handed over to Kingston Council. Thankfully, it wouldn't be that bad. You know, one of the councillors is in our church. She's absolutely lovely. We're not talking about council tax here. We're talking about being handed over and, and flogged in the synagogue. So it could be taken to a place of worship and flogged. On account of me, Jesus says, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. It is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, all these things target Christians because they're Christians. And it happened. Exactly as he said. There was a devastating fire in the city of Rome in the, in the 60s, and the Emperor Nero tried to pin the blame on it for, on Christians. The historian Tacitus described Christians as a class hated for their abominations by the populace. What were the abominations? Being devoted to Jesus. Hatred was so intense for early Christians that family members turned on other family members because they hated the gospel or they were desperate to escape trouble themselves. Everything that Jesus predicts here happened. And in the book of Acts, you can read that the disciples were prepared. They realized that they were suffering precisely what Jesus prophesied here and what he endured himself. Jesus had gone through all this himself first. So the disciples can see that through suffering, the kingdom of God will advance silently in the world as they keep the faith, proclaim the word, in the midst of trial and difficulty. So the central issue here is not how we learn the timing of what might happen, but what to do in the time we're given. Will we wilt under pressure? Will we be consumed by worry? Or will we stand firmly and graciously as our Lord did? He's saying, get ready. Verses 14 to 20, Jesus warns about a war in Judea in the country that they were living in. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not stand, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This quote, this abomination that causes desolation, is a quote from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It refers to something that's really detestable in God's sight, something horrible, a blas blasphemous, horrid, Something that causes horror among the people. And we don't know exactly what it was, but the original readers did. That's why he says, let the reader understand. Seems to be a horrifying event that was in the temple itself in Jerusalem. 
something that would happen, maybe some kind of idol worship that would defile the most holy place. And that was the sign to get out of town. Notice the urgency in verses 14 to 16. Don't hang about. Get out. Run to the hills. The flight will be so rapid that the pregnant and nursing would struggle to keep up as people run for their lives. It will be a dreadful phase of history. Jesus says, pray that it won't take place in the winter. Such great distress. And we know that this did happen in AD 70 when Titus laid siege to Jerusalem and stopped food and supplies going in. Those trapped inside endured horrific privations. In the end, they were starving and resorted to cannibalism of the bodies of those that had died. Violence broke out within the city. Then the Romans broke through, looted the temple, burned it and raised it to the ground. It was the end for them. The Jews still remember this to this day. Now there's a theological point here. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't need a temple because Jesus is our temple. Amen? We don't need a temple. We don't need sacred places. This is a sports hall. You know what? This hall is as holy as the Vatican. Maybe more so. I went to the Vatican, and let me tell you, it was pretty unholy. The church of Jesus Christ is not tied to a temple. Jesus is our temple. That temple was obsolete. We don't need sacred places. We don't need sacrifices, which were offered at the temple, because Jesus is our sacrifice once for all. He's fulfilled all the sacrificial law of Moses. We don't need any more sacrifices. And we don't need priests. We only need one priest. Guess what his name is? Jesus. So in the Protestant church, we don't have priests. Actually, we do. All believers are priests. You don't have some special person making mediation between you and God. You already have the special person. His name is Jesus Christ. We don't need a temple. We don't need sacrifice. We don't need priests. But this also means that the church, which is his body becomes the new temple. So now the church is the temple when the Holy Spirit comes. So Paul, Apostle Paul could even write to the Corinthians, don't you know that you, you yourselves are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Do you know this, friends? God's Holy Spirit is here this morning, right now, speaking to you. Will you listen? If anyone destroys God's temple, Paul says, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. What's he talking about? Anybody that destroys and harms the church. We must take the greatest care not to destroy the local church, mustn't we? And how easy it is to do that by our careless tongues. We don't need to go to Jerusalem to meet God. You can meet him in Chesington because God has come to dwell in our hearts through faith. Therefore, we all strive together for the unity and purity of God's people and this local church is a temple. Right, how should we live when our world is falling apart? Remember, that's the first point. There are five little things. Firstly, take care to be wise. Take care to be wise so you won't be deceived by false teachers. The world is still full of them. Strive to grow in wisdom and discernment so that you can test 
teaching. And one, one really immediate thing is if you were around, church members were around on Tuesday night, Pastor Steve shared with us a really exciting vision about training for us in the congregation, all of us, and also specific equipping for workers who we can train for gospel ministry. And we're looking at a, a, a training course called Crosslands, which will be a way to deepen your, your foundations and your roots and your understanding of the faith, deepen your life as a worshipper, and that will help you to test teaching. So look out for that and ask Steve for more details. Firstly then, uh, take care to be wise. Secondly, be ready for the long haul. Those disciples who heard Jesus say this had to wait nearly 40 years until it was fulfilled. That's more than a generation. A generation of living with bad news coming in the future. John Milton, the English poet, said, they also serve who only stand and wait. And while you're waiting, don't just bite your fingernails. Pray. Hard times will come to the church of Jesus. In every generation, we must learn how to pray fervently. Fourthly, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't be alarmed. Crises will come and go. This week, Jim prayed about it. We've had another crisis in the government. You know what? There'll be another one next week. Even there will be wars. We've got war in Europe again. We shouldn't be surprised. We should be surprised that we didn't have war for that long. There'll be earthquakes, there'll be famines. Jesus says it's all going to come and go. God is still in control. And words will be given to you when you are under pressure. And then practice patience. We need patience, don't we? Tom Wright, uh, Bishop of Durham, a professor. Many Christians today face persecution every bit as severe as that which the early church suffered. And those Christians who don't face persecution often face the opposite temptation, to stagnate, to become cynical, to suppose that nothing much is happening, that the kingdom of God is just a pious dream. Jesus told us we would need patience to hold on and see the thing through. We should not be surprised if we are called, through whatever circumstance, to practice that virtue of patience. Patience takes practice, doesn't it? Every parent here knows that. So that's the first prophecy, it's about the Jerusalem temple, and that's the main emphasis in the chapter, and that's most of my time gone. But there is a second horizon in view, and it's the big one, the really distant one. Because like the vintage prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus could talk about a soon-to-happen event, quite near, an imminent event, and at the same time raise his eyes and look at the distant big picture, and he could speak about both of them at the same time, and the prophets always do this. It's like people talk about going and climbing in the foothills of the Himalayas and they look up and they see the top of a hill and then suddenly they go, oh, because behind it they see Everest rising up, filling the sky. And that's what Jesus does in the second part of the second uh, prophecies here. And it's how to live when Jesus could come back today. So more briefly, the end times. Look at verse 24 with me. But, he says, in those days, this is the other days, the end days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. He doesn't say when this will happen. He's quoting from Isaiah and Joel, Old Testament prophets, talking about the sun, the moon, the stars, heavenly bodies. This is a cosmic 
event, not a local event. Even the, the planets will be shaken. Why? Because he's coming back. Verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus' favorite self-designation in Mark is that he is the Son of Man. It's taken from a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, the one who comes in the clouds is an appearance of God himself. And so this is Jesus talking about himself coming to the world that he's made as God and as Son of Man in great power and undeniable glory. His first coming was in humility, a baby laid in a manger. His second coming will be in glory, and nobody will miss it. Every eye will see, every tongue confess, every knee will bow, and everybody will say, Jesus is Lord. There will be no other option then. And in verse 27, we get this great comfort, Christian friend. He will gather his children home. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, that's all around the world, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Jesus will gather his children home. This is a prediction of what will happen at the second coming. Jesus Christ is risen. He is now reigning and he will return. But we don't know when and we're not supposed to know. It is not for us to know when this will happen. All that we have to, know, to decide is how to live in the light of it. And that's the point of the parable. Verses 34 to 37, Jesus tells this story. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on your guard, be alert. You don't know when that time will come. And he tells this little story, like a man going away. He leaves the house, he puts the servants in charge. Everyone's got a job to do. And he says to the one whose job is to stand at the door, you're on the door, right? Don't go to sleep. Your job is to keep watch. When's he coming back? Because you don't want to be caught napping when the owner of the house gets back. Therefore, says Jesus, keep watch. Because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or he'll come at midnight or when the cock crows, that's the morning, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Wow. So what do we learn about Jesus' return? He will return personally. All will see him. He will return victoriously in the clouds, great power and glory. He will return redemptively. He will redeem and renew the world. Elsewhere in the Bible, 2 Peter, Revelation, we learn that shaking the cosmos will be the beginning of the renewal of all things. A new creation, the world to come. The blessed hope. And he will return justly. He will gather his people and judge the world. No one will get away with it. We want social justice. We don't want the Jeffrey Epsteins of this world to get away with it, do we? And sometimes they seem to. They die in prison. No one will get away with it. His justice is perfect. In fact, if you think about it, judgment is a moral necessity if our God is both loving and just. He must judge. But if he's going to judge, that means he's going to judge me too and you. Are you ready?
in light of his return, how should we live today? When my wife goes on a trip, there comes a point where the family realizes and wakes up to reality that she is going to return. She's coming back! No longer will empty crisp packets, piles of crockery, piles of clothes on the floor, and untidy rooms be acceptable. When she returns, the family gets ready. <laughs> Believe me. Why? To delight her. Just imagine. I'm trying to balance an illustration of fear and delight here, okay? <laughs> maybe, maybe that one didn't work. Just imagine. Jesus, we knew. Somehow we got a, a, a leaked memo, right? We got a leaked memo. Oh, I, I found this. You know, it was on the floor by the King's Center fax. We, we knew that Jesus is coming back on the 31st of December this year. And it's, we're already in July. So, gosh, we're halfway through the year. And, and Jesus is coming back on, the 30, on New Year's Eve. This year, Jesus is coming back, and we all knew this. How would your life change between now and then? By the end of December, you've got less than six months, how would you change? I can think of a few things. Like the watchman, you would take care to be ready on that day. I don't think you would be found compromising with the culture of this world and playing with your favorite sins. I just don't think you'd do that. You would take care to live a holy life as you waited for his return. And also you would pray. You'd know that he's coming back and he's coming to meet you and you'd want to be ready to see him and you would spend time in his presence now. New York pastor and, and author Tim Keller has spoken very movingly about his diagnosis with pancreatic cancer at the start of the first lockdown and how he'd spent much more time in prayer, quiet, sitting at Jesus' feet and praying with his wife than they'd ever done before, sitting in God's presence. He said, I wish I'd done it years ago. You're going to meet him. You would also, I think, you would witness, you would share the gospel with those around you where it was appropriate. Verse 10 says, the gospel must be preached to all nations. We'd want to know that we'd done that, wouldn't we? Now, you can't force these things. But prayerfully, you'd want to make sure I had witnessed to those I could. So let me ask you as we, as we move on today, is there anything in your life right now that you need to put right Is there anything in your life right now that you need to put right? Jesus is coming back. Keep watch, be on guard, be alert. He says it four times. Imagine a great host of people like Wembley Stadium full on a match day. Jesus is at the center. You can see him. He's crowned as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He calls the name out. It's your name. People turn to look at you and they're smiling. They're so thrilled. 
you've been invited to come forward and meet the Lord Jesus himself face to face. You stand before him looking down and he lifts your head and he looks deeply into your eyes and it's as if he's looking into your soul. And then he reaches out a hand that still bears the scars of crucifixion and he takes your hand and gives it a squeeze. And holding your hand, he, he speaks and you hear his voice speaking your heart language. And what does he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear him say that? Let's pray. Lord, you've given us enough information about the future to set our compass on the right path and not to get lost. Lord, you've given us enough information about the future to actually be more serious about following you than we are. Sorry. Lord, you've sent your Holy Spirit to be in the temple, that is, the church, that is, here, to speak to us. Speak to us now, we pray. Amen.